0: I don't know if you've ever thought about being a part of a first century church. In church circles, people talk about wanting to be a first century church. In fact, there's a church plant uh, down the street from here called First Century Church. And I met that pastor uh, a year or so ago. And I said, well, now what do you mean by being a first century church? He goes, well, you know, being a church like the first century. (laughs) Okay, I got that. And I thought to myself, well, that's good if you're talking about Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4. But by five, the Holy Spirit is killing people because they're lying to the Holy Spirit. And by chapter six, the church is ready to split over the fact that widows aren't getting uh, served and they have to get deacons to handle that problem. I mean, all these problems go on. And from there, things just get worse. Uh, really, if you were going to say that, I think you should probably say, I want to be an Acts 2, 3, and 4 church, because after that, the church is really actually pretty messed up, and because uh, people in the church are messed up, we're going to start a series today called Gospel Unity, The Answer to Confusion. And if you can see there on the right-hand side, we're going to look at the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to go through this entire book over the next several weeks. Now, we're going to see throughout this book that the church, even in the early century, was far from perfect, far, far from perfect, okay? Paul will keep bringing them back to the gospel to resolve their problems and their situations. All of their disputes can be solved by the gospel. Today we're gonna talk about Paul setting the stage. He's gonna set the stage here for really the rest of the book. He's gonna even in his, hi, this is Paul, he he says some doctrinal things uh, that are really pretty incredible that kind of set the foundation and the stage for everything else we're going to see in the book of 1 Corinthians. Before we actually get into the text, I want to just do a little bit of an introduction here this week uh, to kind of let you know uh, what the situation was around this writing. First of all, uh, the, the city of Corinth, let's talk about that. It's actually the capital city of the providence, uh, uh, Achaia. And if I say Ikea, I know that that's not where the church at Corinth is, all right? But I have said Ikea so many times, I may say Ikea for, let's uh, see, I'm going to do it. Uh, you know, it's another church, uh, it's in the Providence, uh, starts with an A, but it's not Ikea, all right? Uh, it's a very prosperous city. Has varied cultures and religions in it. It's really kind of an international city. And it wasn't uncommon for every new god to be added to the rest there. Okay, the, most of the folks here were polytheists, which means that they believe in many gods. Uh, So if a a guy comes up with the fact, hey, uh, you know, I'm going to invent a new God, the God of healthy toenails. And so he's going to get a stump somewhere, and he's going to start preaching about the God of healthy toenails. And there's going to be a crowd around, and and they're all going to, I don't know whether it's a, you know, an idol of a big toe or what it is, but he's going to start telling everybody, and they're all going to say, well, there's one more God I can worship. There's There's another God I can worship, another God. And they just keep adding gods because they're polytheists without really any restraint. Okay, that's very common uh, in this culture. Uh, just to show you where the city's at, I know it's kind of hard to see, but it's that black dot to the bottom left there, and as you can see, it's got two big seas on the left and right, or the east and west, and two big land masses, north and south. So this made it a great crossroads for both, both land and sea trade, and that's one of the reasons why it prospered so much. It was a great commercial center with virtually every vice known to man at the time. Now, of course, they didn't have the internet yet, uh, but for every vice that you could think of back in the first century, this city uh, prospered in it, in a sense. This was kind of like uh, the ancient Las Vegas of the day. Uh, and then also, and this is not a photograph, but it's a drawing of, of Corinth. Uh, if a person was extremely worldly back then, they would be known as having been Corinthianized. In other words, hey, if that person's really worldly and they've got, they do all these worldly things and they've got all this stuff in their life, uh, they've been Corinthianized. Now, a large number of Greeks and Romans lived there and it was under Roman rule, but it was in Greece. So you got a large group of Greeks, a large group of Romans, but there were also a large amount of Jewish immigrants there. And Judaism was one of the official religions of the state. And by the way, they had many. So so basically, every uh, religion that had a decent following, um, the state would say, okay, there's another organized religion. There's another organized religion. There's another organized religion. That's going to come into play as we go through the book a little bit. Uh, but that was kind of the, the culture of the day. Uh, truly, it was just an international city. The way that we would look at you know, New York or LA or Chicago, Atlanta, any of those international cities where you go into the airport and you're like, man, this is like every other international city in the world. That's kind of what Corinth was like. Let's talk for just a minute about Paul's connection. Uh, After Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey, uh, they went back to Jerusalem to the Jerusalem council. And if you want to read, uh, read this or if you want to look at this, you can go out actually to our website again and go back a couple of years ago. We went through the entire book of Acts. I think it took us just a little bit over a year to go through it. But in Acts chapter 15, uh, there was this Jerusalem council. And Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways after this council. Paul took a guy named Silas with him. They went back to revisit many of the churches that he found on the first missionary journey to share what was discovered or what was really agreed to at the Jerusalem council. And that was the decision that Christians uh, did not need to become uh, full-fledged, card-carrying Jews to become followers of Jesus Christ. The church early on, uh, because Jesus was a Jew and, and he uh, had disciples and apostles that were Jews, uh, it, was, it was kind of an early uh, church fight that the Jews were saying, well, all of these new Christians, all of these Gentiles, they have to become Jews before they become followers of Jesus. And all of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who were becoming Christians were saying, well, we don't want to be Jews, we want to be followers of Jesus, we want to be Christians. And so they came together at this council, and they determined that you do not have to become a Jew, you do not have to follow the law uh, in order to be a follower of Jesus. Now, on this second uh, missionary journey, when they were going back to churches that Paul had founded in his first journey, he added some other cities that he went to, and he wound up in Corinth. Because of the vast number of new believers that were turning to Christ because of Paul's evangelism there, Paul decided to stay in Corinth about 18 months, which was a a lot longer than usual for Paul on a first visit somewhere. Uh, Most of the time when he would go and visit somewhere, he would lead a bunch of people to Jesus. He'd spend a, a couple of months with them or so, and then he'd move on to start a new church in another city. But he spent 18 months here in Corinth. Now, Paul uh, went on after this, and he ministered in Ephesus and Caesarea, and Jerusalem and Antioch, uh, a whole bunch of different places. And then when returning to Ephesus, which was one of the churches that he went to, he remained there two years. Now, this is where he received an unfavorable report of the church in Corinth, which prompted him to write his first letter. Now, follow me for a second here, because I don't want you to get confused by this. What we actually have in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians and 3 Corinthians. We don't actually have 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote a letter to the church at Corinth that has been lost. We don't have a copy of it. And so, really, when we look at 1 Corinthians, it's actually the second letter that Paul has written to the church, and 2 Corinthians, or what we call 2 Corinthians in our Bible, is actually the third letter that Paul has written. Now, let's not be weirdos and go, well, let's call it the right thing and be 2 Corinthians and 3 Corinthians, because when you go to your friends and say, yeah, we read out of 3 Corinthians, they're going to think we're all nuts here, okay? So don't do that. We call it 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but I want you to understand that because it's important uh, to see why Paul's writing. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, and we're not going to study this today, but he says in there, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with, and that he's referring back to that first letter, okay? So we'll look at that when we get to chapter 5, but it's very clear that what he's saying there is, hey, I wrote to you a, a letter before, and now I'm writing to you this second letter, All right. We don't have the first letter. We can't refer to it, but we may know uh, a lot of what it says simply because of how he responds and corrects them on their understanding of his first letter. Then we also see the occasion for his writing. Well, part of it is that confusion. Uh, But uh, Paul heard from uh, uh, by way of mouth, kind of, that there were divisions emerging in the church at Corinth. There was a lot of fighting going on. There was immorality in the church, and it was being overlooked in the name of tolerance. Immorality in the church was rampant and they were basically saying, well, let's be tolerant and just overlook it. Let's just sweep it under the rug. Let's just pretend it doesn't exist. Sound familiar? Christians were suing each other And they were taking uh, their court cases to judges who were not believers in Christ to have him judge uh, what was the right thing between them. There was bad behavior at the Lord's Supper table. And there were doctrinal errors being taught about the resurrection. And so all these things Paul became uh, aware of because of uh, just verbal uh, context, verbal uh, sayings. Around this time, Paul also also received a letter from the church at Corinth Asking about some specific things. Now, the church was asking about, they had some questions about marriage, questions about virgins, questions about food sacrifice to idols. They wanted to know more about spiritual gifts. They needed help about money and how it was collected and how it was, you know, divvied up or sent out or used. And they also wanted to know about another minister, Apollos, on whether he was legit or not. Now, it was while Paul was in Ephesus that he writes this second letter, which is actually 1 Corinthians. Uh, And he does that in response to all these things. Okay, so there's a series of conflicts and compromises going on that are leading to disunity in the church, infighting between its members. And it's based on all of these things that are word of mouth that got to him and this letter that the Corinth church sent to him saying, is this what you meant about this? Is this what you meant about this? Is this what you meant about this? Now, these two different sources... uh, caused Paul to feel uh, really led. And and of course, we know that he was led by the Holy Spirit to write this letter to the church in Corinth. So in AD, about 54, 55, Paul addresses all of these issues. And folks, none of these issues are uncommon in 2019. It's not like he was uh, writing about things that don't apply to us. Now, let's read through Paul's salutation, where he begins to teach doctrine, even in his hello, that he will use to instruct in all of these situations in his upcoming letter. Let's read through verses 1 through 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and then we'll come back and look at little pieces of it. Here's what it says. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So let's see very briefly today that there's four things I want you to see that even in Paul's hello He wants to set as foundational principles here so that we can properly contextualize the rest of this book, the rest of this letter. First, he defends his apostleship. Paul defends his apostleship. Look back at 1 Corinthians 1.1. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, Sosthenes was one of his kind of helpers, one of his sidekicks that went with him to help him do ministry, But Paul's saying here, I write with apostolic authority. I'm not just a church planter. I'm not just a missionary, while those are good things. He says, I am an apostle chosen by God. Nobody confirmed this on me. Nobody gave me a title or a position. God has made me an apostle, and I'm writing to you with this authority. That reminds them right out of the gate that he teaches with authority and what he says to them should be true. Two, he not only defends his apostleship, but he reminds them of the church ownership. Look at the first half of verse two. He said, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, that's who he's writing to. Now you might think, well, yeah, that's not a big deal. Why, does, why, would he, you know, why is that such a big deal to say that? Well, first of all, he's, he's making it clear to them that the church belonged to God. It belonged to God. Listen, he's the guy that founded the church. He's the guy that first came to town and led a bunch of people to Jesus, started a small group, began to train them and disciple them. More people came to know Christ, and he's discipled them, and then these guys started discipling their friends and neighbors. That church was founded by the apostle Paul. He was the church planter. But he wanted to make it clear to them that it wasn't his church. Even though Paul was the founder and church planner, he wants to remind them clearly who the church belongs to, and it belongs to God. Now, I know sometimes in our culture, uh, we might use the name of a pastor to describe a church, and probably pastors do this more than anybody, uh, because I know the names of all my pastor friends, but I don't know the names of all their churches. So I'll talk about you know Terry Webster's church and and uh, George Lakato's church and and you know that that kind of thing, because I may even forget the actual name of the church. But it's important. It's important. We really should be cautious about doing that because we want to be careful that that thinking doesn't seep into our theology, that it doesn't seep into our, our uh, you know, consciousness that somehow this church belongs to this pastor. Look, folks, this church is not my church. It does not belong to me. Yes, God used me to, to found this church. Uh, pastor Derek's been with us since the beginning. This is not Michael and Derek's church. This is God's church, and it will always be God's church. In fact, the state of Missouri says that as a non-profit religious organization, the organization legally actually belongs to the members. Don't get a big head. It doesn't belong to you either. Okay? The Missouri state may say that, but the scripture is very clear. This church does not belong to the pastors or the elders. It does not belong to the leaders. It does not belong to the members. This church belongs to God. God help us if we lose track of that, folks, because if this is my church, you know what will happen when I die? This church will die along with it. God forbid that that should happen. So let's build this church on the right thing. Paul said, listen, that church, I may have founded it. I may have been the church planter. I may have discipled half. You got to remember, these people were, these are still some of the, probably the leaders of this church were now people that he probably personally led to Christ. He personally invested in them. He had a great investment in what was happening there, but he wanted them to understand this church belongs to God, and it always will. So he also then wanted to let us know that the letter is normative for Christians. Now, this is a, this is a pretty uh, widely debated thing, maybe not in our particular tribe, uh, but in Christianity, and especially in Western culture Christianity right now, uh, this is pretty controversial, what we're going to see here. But look at the last half of verse 2, what Paul says. He says, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, some people suggest that 1 Corinthians was only written to a specific church about their specific problems. And so they don't necessarily apply to us today. While we might see some principles in it, we shouldn't take it too literally uh, because it's, it's not really for us. Nothing can be further from the truth. That's spoken, folks, by people who don't like what Paul is going to say. And so they look for reasons to excuse or reject it. Now, folks, when we read God's word and we don't like what it says, we just need to say, God, I don't see it that way. I'm wrong. You're right. And not say, because I don't like it, God, somehow I've got to explain it away. If we live like that, folks, we're in charge. We're the authority in our lives. God isn't. And so as we read this whole book we need to understand that Paul is not writing just to one church about one thing. In fact, if you want to really think about it, uh, the city of Corinth was somewhere between, we don't really know, but somewhere between at least 100,000 people, and maybe 500,000 people. Chances are that there was more than one local church in a city of two or 300,000 people. And so he's not writing to a single local church in Corinth. He's writing to the church, the universal church at Corinth. All of the local churches. And that's why when he writes this, they clearly understood, clearly understood, in that day to make copies of this and circulate it amongst the churches. It's clear from Paul's words and God's inspiration that this book is for all churches of all time, in all places, no matter the circumstance. And so we need to listen to it, we need to look at it and view it as authoritative, not only for the church at Corinth, but for the church in Kansas City and even Fellowship of Grace. The last thing I want you to see this morning in Paul's hello is that Paul is thankful for the grace of God which acts to sustain and sanctify believers. Let's reread verses 3 through 9, and look what he says. I want you to notice as we read this how optimistic Paul is. Remember, there's, there's a dozen or more problems in this church that are bringing divisiveness, that are causing divisions, that are causing people to, to bang their heads against one another, and yet he's incredibly optimistic. Uh, you know, look what it says in verses 3 through 9. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our Lord he says listen I'm thankful for God's grace working in your lives church at Corinth in spite of how messed up you are I'm still grateful and excited about God working in your life That's what he was optimistic about. He wasn't optimistic that they got everything figured out and they were living perfect lives, of course. But he was very optimistic that they were Christians. They'd given their life to Jesus and he was working in them. He says no gift was lacking to those who had received God's grace. Even if false teachers were coming in, and we'll see that they were, and they were teaching that there was something more. There's something more. There's something more. Now that's why... I don't know if you notice this or not, but we don't sing any songs around here that talk about getting more of God. Now There are plenty of those songs on the radio and on the Christian radio band. Uh, Jesus, I want more of you. Jesus, I want more of you in my life. We don't sing them because they're doctrinally wrong. We can't get any more of him. Now, we can yield more to him, and I know that's what they're trying to say. What they're trying to say is, I want to be more like you. I want to give my life more completely to you but we're not actually getting more of him. Folks, the moment that you receive Christ as your Savior, you get all of him you're ever going to get. The Holy Spirit comes and fills you. Your eternal security is is determined and not even you can change that. Okay so so we don't sing songs about you know around here about you know god please come and give us more of you or all those kind of things and they they sound good and they're you know kind of touchy feely songs but we don't sing them around here plus he was saying listen there's no there's no there's no outside doctrines that complete the the, the gospel folks the gospel is never going to change it's very simple we are all sinners we can't do anything to stop sinning But God sent his son Jesus to die, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, to give up his body and his blood, which we're going to celebrate here in a little bit. He gave up his body and his blood. Nobody took his life. He gave it freely to pay for our sins. And by putting our faith and trust in that and that alone, in him and him alone, we can receive salvation. We can be connected to God forever. We can become his children. And folks, there's nothing to add to that. Nothing to add to that. Paul's saying there's nothing more, folks. Remember what saved you. He says, listen, because you were legitimately saved, I am confident in your eventual legitimate godliness. Now, we're all on a path. We're all at different places on our journey. Some of us have been Christians 30, 40 years. Some of us have been Christians 30, 40 days. And hopefully, there will be people in this room who might become Christians today. Listen, we are not on the same path, but the same God who saves us is the same God who sanctifies us, who teaches us to be more like Jesus, who causes us to become more like Christ. Hopefully, that is a process that keeps working. Now, I want to I just mention, kind of as a side note here, we have generally been good at this. We need to keep being good at this. We're getting ready to start community groups. And there are some people in our church who've become Christians very recently. And some who are uh, attending here who are curious about Christianity who are not Christians yet. And I know what will happen if they come to a community group and one of them drops an F-bomb, you are all gonna freak out and crawl under the table. Now listen. Listen. We don't swing the pendulum and say, hey, every behavior is just fine with us. We don't, we don't have any rules. No, no, no. That's, that's ridiculous. But we also want to swing it over here and say, hey, listen, if you became a Christian last week and, and you get really excited about what God's doing in your life and you drop an F-bomb because you are used to using that as a verb, as a, uh, a verb for everything, we just, we just love you anyway. Listen, folks, people are, they need to be instructed. I get that. They need to learn and grow in that. I get it. But we, we can't become a, a place where we just all come here and we huddle together because we think we got it all together. There should always be people in our church that are struggling desperately, desperately with sinful things because they don't know Jesus yet or because they just met him or because they just committed their lives to him. And we need to be loving to them and kind to them and disciple them and all those things. But folks, that's why we should reject the notion of being a perfect church. There are no perfect churches. And if a church thinks that they've become perfect, what that means is they're a bunch of crusty old believers who won't be honest with themselves and don't want anybody to come around them to mess up their holiness. God forbid we should ever be one of those churches. So let's just just be honest with each other and say we're all messed up. Hopefully I'm less messed up now than I was five years ago. And you too. But God is working on us. Church is not kept holy by keeping sinners away. But rather it's a place where newly born sinners are brought and taught how to follow Jesus. Listen, if there was hope for the church at Corinth who was so messed up, there is hope for any New Testament church that commits to change according to God's word. Changes a church, changes individuals, changes groups. No one is hopeless except for those who know the gospel but refuse to accept it or place it in authority in their lives. That's why Paul was so optimistic, even in the presence of so many problems. He was saying basically, listen, I know you were saved by Jesus. I know he's real in your life. I know you're all messed up right now, but I have hope. I have hope for the future because I know he is in you and he can change you and he can make you different. Folks, that's why we can be optimistic about God's continued work in us as individuals and us as a church. So Paul sets the stage with some really basic things here, but some really basic things we need to keep uh, uh, clear as we look at this whole book. We're going to read some things in this book. If you have not read this book all the way through and had questions, um, You know, maybe you should be teaching this. I don't know. There's just a lot of things we're going to question. There's a lot of things in here you're going to go, really? How's that work? And what does that look like? And how do we do? Why do we do this this way? Okay. But as we read this book and we study this book, don't forget that Paul is an apostle. He speaks with authority. Don't forget that this church belongs to God and he can tell it whatever he wants. Don't forget that whatever Paul says is normative. It's as much applicable to this church as it was to the church in Corinth. And lastly, uh, we should be thankful, just like Paul was, that those of us who are here that know Jesus, we've been saved by him. Yes, we are in process. Yes, we still have some rough edges that need to be worn off and, and, and uh, prayed off and uh, discipled off. But the reality is we can become more like Jesus because he is in us. We should approach this letter with thankfulness for God's grace, but a willingness to grow and change as we see Paul address the problems of this church and, in essence, all churches.